Danielle's reading earlier of the, the passage of the paranoid style of American politics, it reminded me of a bumper sticker that I saw the other day. It said, it's not paranoid if they really are after you. <laughs> Touche. But what I want to talk about with you this morning is that over the past few decades, many studies have shown an increasing political polarization in this country. This widening gap between the right and the left has made finding a middle ground increasingly difficult. So in this presidential election season in which our collective awareness of political polarization is heightened, I want to invite us to take a step back and reflect on how our Unitarian Universalist values might help us in navigating this divide. Unitarian Universalism is part of what is known as the free church tradition, as opposed to religious movements that are you know, more of a hierarchy, where, for example, instead of the congregation owning the building and the property and controlling governance as they do here, it might be the bishop controlling you know, a series of, of congregations or a, a presbytery, you know, a group of elders or a region. Instead, we are a congregational polity, a free church. We believe in the importance of individuals freely choosing beliefs, ethics, community for themselves. We also live in a free country. But here's the hard part. It turns out that free individuals do not always choose to believe, to act, to associate in ways that I or you or even we might prefer. Along these lines, there are ways of reading our seven principles. They're listed on the back of each week's order of service. There are ways of reading them as supporting a certain set of political beliefs. But there's another way of reading our UU seven principles as protecting the rights of those with whom I or you or we disagree or even how we might disagree amongst ourselves. The inherent worth and dignity, not of the people that agree with us, but of every single person. Justice, equity, and compassion, not just for those like us, but in all human relations. How about the third one? Just acceptance of one another in all our complexity, in all our diversity. A free and responsible search for truth and meaning without a predetermined ending in mind. The right of conscience, the use of the democratic process. So each individual needs to look within their own heart and vote as that person sees fit. The goal of world community, not a shut-off ghetto or enclave of the people that are like us, but world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not for some, but for all, and respect for the interdependent web of all existence. So in this hotly contested presidential election season, as even as we might argue passionately for our respective political perspectives, our UU principles also call us to respect a baseline of freedom for individuals to discern for themselves. That being said, there is a certain bias built into the free church tradition. Affirming individual freedom does tend to tilt a society toward pluralism and diversity. History shows us that when you grant individual liberty, some individuals will choose conformity to tradition, to authority, to community, but many others will choose radically diverse expressions of personality. 
along these lines. Some people sometimes express surprise at my journey from the Southern Baptist Christianity of my childhood to Unitarian Universalism. But from a congregational governance perspective, both Baptists and UUs are part of the free church tradition. They're both comprised of individuals who freely choose to affiliate with a given congregation, and each given congregation is in turn autonomous and free to choose whether or not to affiliate with larger groups, networks, or associations. Indeed, the full name of the UUA, the Unitarian Universalist Association, is the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations. We're not a denomination, we are an association. We are a movement of free individuals and free congregations who have freely chosen interdependence because we are stronger together. Growing up, I learned about what Baptists call the four freedoms. Religious freedom, soul freedom, Bible freedom, and church freedom. I was taught that we should have religious freedom, that there should be freedom from state-sponsored or state-forced religion. I was taught soul freedom, that each individual must choose for him or herself. You know, I wasn't baptized as an infant. I was baptized as an adult who freely chose what to believe. Bible freedom, that you must read and interpret scripture for yourself. And church freedom, that individual congregations should be autonomous and self-governing and who will be their leaders and how they want to organize themselves. In many ways, it sounds very UU. Now, the difference is they ultimately expected you in your freedom to choose a certain path, right? Uh, so whereas you use, we have a much deeper tolerance for uh, plurality. But emerging from those four freedoms, you will find many Baptist congregations that are quite theologically conservative, but you'll find many other Baptist congregations that are actually quite theologically liberal. Because while it is true that Jerry Falwell and Mike Huckabee and Roy Moore and Tim LaHaye and Fred Phelps are all Baptist, so too are Martin Luther King Jr., Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Jimmy Carter, Jesse Jackson, and Bill Moyers. That's the kind of diversity that emerges when individual freedom and liberty are your starting point, both in congregations and in the larger society. But what happens when individual liberties and preferences conflict? For instance, many of you likely saw the front page headline last week in the Frederick News Post that read, Transgender teen says he and his mother were removed from Cruz event. How do we as a society adjudicate between one person's freedom to choose the bathroom that feels right to them and another person's, I would say, perhaps uninformed fear about gender-neutral bathrooms? Because I can testify, I have been to the gender-neutral bathrooms, and it turns out they're just bathrooms. In reflecting on these issues, I appreciated a story um, from one of my former colleagues in the Alliance of Baptists, the Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, who is now the minister of Riverside Church in New York City. On a recent flight from Europe, Amy found herself in the midst of a conflict around differing interpretations of religious freedom and individual religious liberty. As she approached the seat listed on her ticket, she noticed that all around her seat were men dressed identically. She guessed correctly that they were part of an Orthodox religious group. But as she sat down, the man beside her immediately pressed the call flight attendant button. And he informed the flight attendant that she would need to be, this woman will need to be moved to another seat because my religion prohibits me from sitting next to any woman who is not my wife. 
Now, Amy confesses, I had so many thoughts at that moment. She did not give up her seat, but the conflict was also just beginning. There were other perceived violations of religious freedom around airline food, not passing theological muster, as well as the men feeling religiously prohibited from interacting with female flight attendants. She writes, the end result, Amy writes, the end result was noisy, contentious, and an anxiety-ridden eight hours. So how do we move forward? Is there an unresolvable impasse from a, uh, between a woman's freedom to sit in her assigned seat and a religiously orthodox man's convic- conviction that the God of his understanding forbids him to sit next to a woman who is not his wife? How do we solve the dilemma of one person's perceived religious freedom to, only se- to sell wedding cakes only to opposite-sex couples or another person's desired religious liberty to maintain traditional gender roles in bathrooms. One frequently missing insight in these debates is that religious liberty, the freedom to choose your religion without coercion by the government, coercion by religious leaders, or coercion by a larger community, that individual religious liberty does not extend to unduly controlling other people. Sometimes I think that we in the United States have become so far removed from what it actually would look like to not have religious freedom, to be part of a state-sponsored religion where under threat of imprisonment or death, you will follow those religious dictates, such as the Inquisition or other historical examples. We've gotten so far away from that that we've forgotten how precious and hard-won individual religious freedom is. But that individual freedom of religion does not give those individuals power to impose their religion on others. I respect, though disagree, if the God of your understanding tells you not to use contraception. But but that does not mean that you can control your employees' access to birth control. To use the language of our Constitution, the First Amendment has both a free exercise clause and an anti-establishment clause regarding religion. That Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So while you do have freedom of religion, your individual freedom does not include the right to establish your religion on others. That would be one step too far. As our Unitarian forebear and Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, the right to swing my fist ends when your nose begins. Or as Reverend Amy said in reflecting on her airplane encounter, religious freedom is just that. It's just freedom. And it doesn't say religious comfort. If your religion tells you that you can't sit next to a woman on a plane, the onus is on you. You can figure out various ways of making that happen. You can move. You can buy two seats to make sure that no one's sitting next to you. But the onus is on you to to maintain that. When we forget this insight, claims about religious liberty too often end up masking what in reality is an attempt to force an individual's group, an individual or a group's sexism, racism, or homophobia on a larger society. 
Now, to be clear, in a free society, individuals can and do freely choose sexist, racist, homophobic, language, actions, both consciously and unconsciously. However, a commitment to individual liberty requires limits on how individuals interact with one another. As the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. It may be true, he continued, that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, or it can punish him if he does. And I don't mean to be flippant when I say next that simply keeping us from killing each other and then allowing us to live freely among one another in all our diversity is a tremendous catalyst for progress. As Dr. King said later in the same speech, one of the tragedies of our whole struggle is monologue rather than dialogue. And I am convinced that men hate each other because they actually just fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other, and they don't know each other because they don't communicate with one another, and they don't communicate with one another because they are separate. This dynamic remains true today. So many people have become less sexist, not because they were convinced by an abstract argument, but because a relationship with their daughter or their mother or their spouse, or their other loved one who they suddenly realized was being discriminated against just because of the sex they were born with. Likewise, the struggle for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender justice has been advanced much less by reasoned arguments, though that's been part of it too, than by people experiencing loved ones coming out of the closet and realizing that LGBT, LGBT folk are not them, but us. Even in the face of our increasingly polarized country, there is a broadening trend of expanding concentric circles of who we understand to be we the people, of who we understand to be part of us on whom we fully enfranchise. Almost 60 years ago, when then-Senator John F. Kennedy was running for president, he had to give a major speech convincing the U.S. public that a Roman Catholic could be president without basically ceding the power of the White House to the Pope. To use another branch of government to show how far our culture has shifted, there are now five Catholic members of the Supreme Court. There used to be six prior to the death of Antonin Scalia. And there are three Jewish members, maybe soon to be four, and no Protestants. Similarly, despite major persecution against Mormons in our nation's history in the last presidential election cycle, white evangelicals voted for Governor Mitt Romney in even greater numbers than they had voted for George W. Bush four years earlier. Romney may have lost, but Mormons won that election. When I was young and my worldview was formed almost exclusively from a Southern Baptist perspective, I would have been more or less happy to learn that it turns out overnight all six plus billion people at that time on earth have become Southern Baptists. But as I grew older, I began, you know, shockingly to meet increasing numbers of non-Southern Baptists who were kind, who were well-adjusted, who were smart, funny, competent human beings. And when your roommate is a Roman Catholic, your best friend is an atheist, and your favorite professor is a Buddhist, it's increasingly difficult to maintain with integrity the position that any one belief system is the only or best way of being in the world. 
Now, this conviction does not make me a relativist. I don't believe that just any way is good or appropriate, but I am a pluralist. I do believe that there is more than one legitimate way of being in the world. That's why we use have not one source of our living tradition, but six sources. So in this presidential election season, be passionate about your convictions. I don't really have to worry about that with all of you, but uh, this next part might be helpful. But restrain yourself as much as possible from what might be called brutal honesty. And instead say, how might I speak the truth as I currently understand it in love? Amidst a political process that often cynically pits neighbor against neighbor, let us continue to be part of building the beloved community. For now, I'd like to leave you with these words from Diana Eck. She's a professor of comparative religions at Harvard, who for many years, starting in 1991, directed what was known as the Pluralism Project. So what they did was they, both in Cambridge, but then extending out to religion departments across the country, including Furman University, where I was in South Carolina, they hired students during the summer to go out into their communities, including especially small towns and rural areas, and investigate what religious diversity was out there. And they found astounding and documented astounding religious diversity in some of the most rural, surprising places. They're like, wait, there's a Sikh Gurdwana here, and there's a Hindu temple there, and they just found amazing religious diversity all over this country. So out of that work, um, Diana Eck shared these words in a sermon in 2007 at All Souls, the Unitarian Church of All Souls in New York City. They remain relevant today for the role that we, you use, might play amidst our politically polarized landscape. Dr. Eck wrote, The world has need of your theology. She said, if ever there were a time that we need to spin out a new fabric of belonging, a wider sense of we for the human community, it is certainly now in a world divided by race, religion, and ideology. In such a world, the very presence of a religious movement like Unitarian Universalism, committed to the love of neighbor and the service of humanity, that's a beacon. And the Unitarian Universalist theology, and she said, yes, you do have one, does not reduce the mystery of the divine, the transcendent, but instead amplifies it and broadens it to include the many, many ways in which the divine is known and yet unknown. Developing a consciousness of our growing religious interrelatedness, developing a moral compass to give us guidance in the years ahead, these are among the most important tasks of our time. And you, you, yous have a theological orientation toward oneness and mystery. That is essential for the world of religious difference in which we live. In this era, Unitarian Universalism is not the lowest common denominator, but among one of the highest common callings. After the benediction, we'll invite you to stay seated. The lyrics are in your order of service for yet another brief interactive postlude, so for Beltane. Uh, Before the benediction, I'll share with you just one final reflection. There was a series of pictures that appeared again in the the news post. The news post, you know, they always say you should preach with uh, a scripture in one hand and the newspaper in the other, right? So the news post this week, uh, following again the the Ted Cruz rally, had uh, some pictures of protesters. And if you follow the letters to the editor page, one of them picked up on uh, one of the protesters had... um, So Jesus saying, you know, peace on earth, Jesus, colon, love your enemies, 
and then underneath that, uh, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And this letter, the editor just, you know, sort of lamb blasted that uh, protester for saying, you know, Jesus didn't say peace on earth, goodwill to men. You know, the angels did. And then conveniently ignored the love your enemies part, which is what typically happens with people reading. I thought about replying to this letter to the editor, but I'm not sure that I'm yet figured out a way to do it that is speaking the truth in love and not brutal honesty. So I have not yet done that. There's a certain trickiness to the letters to the editor. It's a particular medium. There's a delay. There's also a lack of relationship with the person that you're um, your interlocutor. Uh, but my, to briefly say, my perception of this letter to the editor writer was that it was an example of a little knowledge being dangerous. So this person knew enough to be able to quote Jesus saying, you know, what Jesus actually said was that I come to bring not peace but a sword or a peace not division, as some translations say, and then said, or as it says in John, uh, Jesus comes to bring peace but not as the world knows it. But didn't continue because, the, and here's the significant part, that when Jesus said, I come to bring not peace but division, or I come to bring not peace but a sword, it goes on to say, I come to set mother against daughter, I come to set father against son, you know, wife against husband. And what that means is that Jesus is saying, I come to break apart family and love as you have known it in the Greco-Roman world, and instead to say, don't only care about your biological family. Don't only care about those who are related to you. There's also a part in there where he's saying he's breaking wife from husband and father from child, that in the Roman world, what is known as the paterfamilias, the, the head of the family, really ruled with an, could rule with an iron fist, really, without over the family. And so what Jesus is saying is, they're not in charge. It's not about that. Everyone, it's a, it's a radical democratization. And say, so I'm going to break apart these family relationships and have love that is out for one another, including your enemies, that is outside of those traditional biological barriers. So, uh, and often I think what's underneath this um, for people is they fear that kind of love and fear breaking those social barriers. I find it sometimes helpful to ask, what's at risk? What's really at risk? Because what people think is going to happen is actually much more hyperbolic than anything like reality of, for example, gender-neutral bathrooms. So as you continue your journey, continue in love. Care for one another and care for this earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving.